trials, sidebars, hearings, settlement conferences, consultations. Lawyers talk a lot. It's what they do for a living. And if you get into a conversation with one, they tend to have some pretty good tales to tell. This is Law Stories, where we bring you the best attorney anecdotes. And here's your host, the president and CEO of M2M Legal, James Skiles. Welcome to Law Stories Episode 5, where this week you'll be hearing from our guest, Todd Allen, attorney partner at Allen & Lindsay PLLC. Todd has a great story for you. He is living proof that lawyers use their skills for the forces of good in his story where he was able to exact karmic revenge against an unscrupulous corporate empire. Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, good. So we're not all bad guys, and contrary to... Uh, the uh, reputation of the profession. Uh, you've uh, you've you've done some some good things in your in your profession. Why don't you take a few moments and tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of practice? Uh, thanks. Yeah. So I've been a a lawyer uh, licensed in Florida since 2010. Um, you know, I I came from a technology background, working for Intel and Microsoft, and decided that I would uh, go to law school and sort of start a second career and um, during law school sort of became, uh, um, wanted to help consumers, uh, you know, sort of battle these larger banks and these large corporations that, you know, tend to take advantage of the, the middle class and those who are uh, not so sophisticated. So what do you do specifically in your practice? Uh, I represent a lot of consumers early in my career. I, I represented a lot of uh, owners who were in uh, facing mortgage foreclosure, as you know, you know, Southwest Florida, and in fact, most of Florida for that matter was hit fairly hard in the housing crisis uh, beginning in 2008. And that was, uh, that was probably the first couple of years of my, uh, my practice was really dedicated to uh, defending owners in foreclosure and uh, some of the predatory lending practices. Hey, do you still practice in, uh, in foreclosure defense? Yeah, there's not much work out there right now. You know, for the most part, the, the crisis has been over, but there are, you know, private lenders and stuff that, that tend to foreclose on homeowners now. Um, most of my practice now is representing tenants and evictions and um, stuff like that. So Early on in my practice, too, I mean, you'd go to – there there'd be – uh, a couple of courtrooms that would be dedicated to doing nothing but foreclosures and there'd be lines out the door. And in Chicago, there are two firms that did pretty much all of the, uh, the foreclosure prosecution. And there would be one attorney there with a giant, giant stack of, 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 uh, of cases, the case files with foreclosures. And the weird thing was, is that, you know, these are all like first year associates that were uh, doing the foreclosure prosecution. And when you go from one place to the next, you'd never run into the same attorney on the other side twice because they recycle through them so quickly. Not just the cases, but the attorneys too. I'm sure there's a lot of burnout when it comes to that. So it was such an odd situation that we were dealing with back then. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, it's, it's fortunate enough that uh, you know a lot of attorneys right out of law school were able to get litigation experience fairly quickly, but it it was a, a a mess. I mean, they called it the rocket docket down here for a reason. No, really. So foreclosure cases were usually done pretty quickly. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, 
you could get, uh, you know, where a summary judgment motion would last typically in any other case, you know, an hour or so of hearing time, you would maybe get five minutes in front of the judge to, to, to either to prosecute a summary judgment motion or to on the homeowner side to defend one. Yeah, we kind of sort of had the same same situation here, but a good foreclosure defense attorney would usually be able to to uh, have the case drawn out for at least six months, and that would give them time to to you know hopefully come up with some sort of settlement on the uh, on it. So that was the way it was here. Yeah, for the most part, you could hear. I mean, a lot of the judges they they started pulling in retired judges on the bench, and you know, some of these retired judges were just making really sketchy decisions that um, enforcing uh, homes through the foreclosure process faster than they should have been. Wow. That's unreal. Yeah. So I, I have to say that uh, that your story is is one of my favorite stories from Legal Profession. Why don't you tell us what happened? Sure. So I, I represented uh, Warren and Maureen Nayirgis. They came into my office for uh, some estate planning, and in just passing had mentioned that they were in the middle of uh, foreclosure defense against Bank of America. And so we started talking about it. You know, I was asking some questions to see if they, you know, were really interested in hiring us to defend it. And, um, and they told me that they didn't have a mortgage, that they'd you know, they paid cash for their home and that Bank of America was trying to foreclose on it. And, you know, as a foreclosure attorney, I, at that point, I thought I'd heard everything under the sun. And so I, I sort of didn't believe them and, um, you know, kept probing and probing them and said, no, we, we, we paid cash. And I excused myself from our meeting to, you know, go look at the records. And I pulled up the records real quick on the county website and they were right. They hadn't, hmm. uh, you know, they'd pay cash for it. So um, that's, any, that's kind of how it Any how it issues with title or anything like that? No, I mean, what had happened is my clients had bought this property from Bank of America at a foreclosure sale. There was a, uh, the, the previous owner of the property had a first mortgage and a second mortgage with Bank of America. But the problem came is um, when Bank of America foreclosed, they cleared out the first mortgage in their inventory, but they had never cleared out the second mortgage in their inventory. So uh, the second mortgage kept popping up and you know, somebody in Bank of America said, go foreclose on this second mortgage. And so they, they filed a foreclosure action against my clients and we ended up in court defending it. Even though the mortgage wasn't theirs, it was the previous owners. Right. Yeah, so typically what happens in a mortgage foreclosure, they'll name everybody under the sun. And, you know, they found out that my clients were current owners. Um, and so they included them as defendants um, because they were currently on title to the property. But had they spent, you know, had Bank of America spent five minutes on a title search and five minutes reviewing what happened in their own system, they would have never filed this foreclosure. Wow. So, so essentially you're saying that Bank of America filed a foreclosure on a mortgage they didn't even have. Correct. Yeah. So what, what happened from there? Why don't, you, why don't you walk us through what happened? So we went to court. Um, we were able to get the, uh, the case dismissed and we were able to get the judge to award us attorney's fees. We're not talking a huge amount of money either. It was like $2,500. 
that uh, the court ordered Bank of America to pay my clients. And um, we, you know, went through the entire process of finalizing the judgment and then went to try and collect on it and couldn't get Bank of America. I couldn't get their attorney uh, to respond. Their attorney was one of the foreclosure mills that the state shut down. And so they were in the middle of the loading at the time this all happened. One of those, one of those firms that would come in with the giant stacks in the first year associate that would just run through. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, This, this firm that was handling was uh, in the middle of the robo signing crisis where, you know, they were signing affidavits without really reviewing the file, having no personal knowledge of the file and signing affidavits as if they did. Wow. That's a little, um, that's a little fraudulent. No, completely fraudulent. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's deposition testimony out there of people signing affidavits, you know, five, 600 in a day and maybe getting a minute, a minute and a half with each affidavit. They were just literally signing and having, uh, signing the documents, notarizing the affidavits and passing them on. So, Hmm. but we, we got the judgment. Uh, then I sent a letter to the, um, chief legal counsel for bank of America said, Hey guys, look, you owe my client $2,500, you know, send a check to my office. If I don't hear from you within 30 days, um, I'm going to go do a, a writ of attachment on some Bank of America furniture and property in your in one of your local branches. And so I, I sent that letter to their chief legal counsel expecting to get a response and I got nothing. They hmm. I sent a certified letter, got the green card back saying that they'd signed for it, but they just chose to ignore me at that point. Wow. So yeah, it, it was really eye, is, eye-opening at that point. And this is over $2,500, a bank that, that does billions of dollars in transactions each year wasn't willing to respond to a letter for demanding an, an enforcement of a judgment for $2,500. Yeah. That's, yeah. It was, it was really stupid that, uh, and it, you know, they ended up paying way more than that in the end, but you know, it, for they could have just cut a check and it would have been over fairly quickly. Um, but they chose to ignore it, chose to just, you know, brush it under the, the rug. And so I, I went to court and, um, asked the judge for a writ of attachment, which, you know, what did you explain a, what a writ of, writ of attachment is? Yeah. Writ of attachment is a legal procedure by which the sheriff's department will actually go out and seize assets um, of a, a debtor, a judgment debtor, and will actually sell the assets, assets at a sheriff. So sheriff will take the assets, conduct the sale, collect the proceeds, um, pay off the judgment. And then anything's left over will be sent over to the uh, judgment debtor. So I went to the court and asked for that writ of attachment and the judge really didn't want to give it to me. Um, he, he knew what was going to happen. And I, I, I think he just didn't want to draw any more attention to uh, the foreclosure crisis in Southwest Florida. So we, we fought about it for probably 35, 40 minutes in a hearing and he finally relented. Um, and we got it, you know, part of the, the writ process is you have to give, um, the sheriff's department a $20,000 deposit. They want the money to go out and, cause they had to hire a moving truck. They had to hire movers. They had to hire a retained space in a warehouse to uh, store the items. So, you know, my client, um, it's a fairly successful guy, had the money and we put the deposit down and um, waited for, oh geez, it seemed like forever. It's probably two or three months. Um, 
for the writ to finally be finalized with the sheriff's department before they actually went and served it on, um, on the bank. But at this time, you know, I was, I was probably been licensed for six months at the time. Oh, so this is really yeah, early I'd, on. Really, this is probably the first real litigation case I'd been in where we were, um, I had a, a, a good adversary and we were, you know, we were trading blows in litigation. And um, so I was nervous. I, you know, it's one of those things where you're so early in your career that you're going up against Bank of America. If this thing blows up in your face, you know, it, it could be devastating to your career. And um, so I, you know, I, I talked to some friends who had been practicing for, you know, five, six, 10 years and asked them what they would do. And they all told me, no, don't do it. They said for 2,500 bucks, it's just not worth it. Um, and I so took let, their, let's, let's paint, the, paint the picture here. You, here you are six months into your practice. You're going against one of the largest financial entities in, in the world. So yeah. we're talking huge David versus Goliath situation. You have basically the resources of your client, and they have every single resource in the world to come against you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, gonna be literally, little, that's going to be a little intimidating. It, it was devastating. I mean, the night before the writ of attachment was served on the, uh, the bank, I didn't sleep a wink. I was up, you know, pacing, reviewing the file, making sure I didn't miss anything, that all my, you know, I's were dotted and T's were crossed. And so, you know, the sheriff's department showed up at the bank that next morning. And just to take a step back, uh, during my time um, representing owners, I had sort of facilitated a relationship with the local media, the Naples Daily News, uh, Fox 4 and Week News. And all we sort of all built this relationship where I would, you know, they would call me for sound bites on, you know, foreclosures. And I would feed information to them saying, hey, look you know, this is what's happening in the courtroom on these foreclosures. And so I, I got word from the sheriff's department that the writ was going to be served the next day. And I didn't want anything to, to spill out. And so I called my contacts at the at the paper and the, the TV stations and said, Hey guys, I can't tell you really what's going on, but you need to be at this bank of a branch bank of America branch at nine o'clock tomorrow. You just need to trust me at the, on this. Um, and they showed up. And so when we went out to uh, serve the writ on, on the, uh, the bank, there was, you know, the big 26 foot moving truck from the moving company and a whole bunch of media. Wow. What was the look on their faces? Well, it was funny because I, when I showed up, the sheriff's department was already in the bank manager's office. Whoa. And uh, I, I walked in the branch um, you know, saw them sitting in the, the office and I, I went in and, you know, introduced myself to the deputies and to the bank manager. And, you know, they were sitting there chatting and I, I looked at the deputy and I said, you know, what, what are we doing? What's the holdup? You know, why, why aren't we moving furniture? And, you know, they, they pushed me or not, you know, pushed me. They asked me to leave the office um, so they could communicate with the, the branch manager, but the branch manager's face, I mean, he was, stone cold, white as a ghost, you know, no emotion, you know, clearly nervous of what was going on. Um, so they pushed me out and, you know, sat and communicated with him for about, you know, an hour or so. And then uh, you know, the sheriff's department were, they were finally able to wrangle a check out of him for the $2,500.
Wow. So in a normal foreclosure proceeding, the end result is that the authorities come to secure property in order to, well, to obtain property in order to secure against the debt. So essentially right. what you're doing here is you're, you have a debt, basically you have a debt that's owed by Bank of America to your clients. And so you're going there to obtain property as security on a debt. It's kind of sort of the yeah. same thing, isn't it? Oh, it's, yeah, it's nearly identical. I mean, it's the same thing. I, I just did it in reverse. You know, we did it whatever they'd been doing to thousands of homeowners down here. We were able to flip the, the table and do it to them fairly quickly. So in a nutshell, you, you foreclosed on Bank of America. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, every once in a while you get an attorney that's like, Oh, it's not really a foreclosure. You know, it's more of a writ of attachment or, a, you know, a forfeiture. But yeah, I mean, it has the same effect. You, you seize, we're going to seize assets to pay a debt. Wow. That's, so, that's incredible. Yeah. It was really rewarding. So once, once we got the check, you know, um, you know, the, the TVs crews were in the bank branch parking lot, broadcasting live. Um, you know, there was a bunch of TV trucks there and but I got my check. I, you know, I, I thought I was done. I went back to the office and, you know, was going to get racked to work on some other files, but my phone had blown up, but before I could get back to the office and really um, media or media and then uh, bank of America hired an attorney from, um, uh, Ackerman Centerfit up in Washington, DC. And he was, he, he called my office and spoke to my receptionist and said, I'm not getting off this phone until I talk to Todd Allen. And so he sat there for almost, you know, half hour, 45 minutes before I got back to the office and I let him sit on there a little bit longer before I actually took the call. Um, Just to make him sweat a little bit or? Yeah, I wanted him to feel it. You know, I wanted him to feel what my clients had, had felt, you know, the anticipation and the uncertainty. So I, you know, I let him sit there and, uh, you know, I picked up the phone and he was a very nice guy, very cordial. And he said, you know, Mr. Allen, what's it going to take to get this media out of my client's parking lot? So I don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're gonna have to talk to them. That, that's not my doing. So he, he, you know, he was concerned about, um, you know, the, the press that was going on and, you know, what was, what was happening. So I, you know, that was the end of the conversation. This, that was on a Friday uh, afternoon. And so I told him I couldn't make any guarantees. Um, I wasn't going to do anything to, to help his client either. And so, you know, the, the day ended and I was moving at that time. And uh, that weekend with my family, I shut off my phone. I thought, this is it. You know, I'm, I'm going to take the weekend and move my family into our new home. And um, I, I got a call from my brother. Uh, saying, hey, you know, why aren't you returning phone calls? And it, it turned out I was getting text messages from friends across the country and my parents, my, my family, that the article had made it to the Drudge Report. And um, flipped on my cell phone and it blew up. And I had been, you know, getting calls from CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, um, all wanting to do interviews because of the story that they saw on uh, the Drudge Report. Wow. Yeah. So the next week after the, the execution was completed, we was spent, you know, shuttling back and forth between interviews with media, um, you know, just sharing the story, explaining what happened. 
Um, so yeah, we, we were able uh, to really be on a lot of good shows, a lot of people who were concerned about, you know, what so Bank of America had been doing and their foreclosure practices. And so they really wanted to see somebody stick it to them. They didn't have the best reputation at the time, did they? No, I mean, their foreclosure practices were just hideous, you know, they, and the, and the banks were getting a, you know, a, 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 a buy in court. You know, I had one particular judge who just completely ignored a um, rule of civil procedure. And, you know, one of the rules down here is if you file an affidavit in court and you reference a document um, in that affidavit, you have to attach it as an exhibit to that affidavit. So I was arguing a summary judgment motion saying, judge, the affidavits that are relying on don't have this information attached to it. It's invalid. You can't enter a summary judgment based off that, that affidavit. And the, the judge basically said, you know, now, nah, you know, I'm going to enter judgment in favor of the bank. And I, you know, I fought with him on it. I said, okay, just, I want to make sure that that's going to be your order. He said, yep, that's my order. And so I, I asked for permission to draft the order and send it in for signature. And he said, yeah, go ahead. So I went back to, to my office and drafted up and said, you know, uh, plaintiff's uh, summary judgment motion is granted. Um, plaintiffs are no longer required. Plaintiff and plaintiff's counsel are no longer required to comply with Florida rule of civil procedure. I think it was 1.140. And I thought he's either going to send that judgment back to me and say, no, nah, that's not what I said, or he's going to call me in front of the courtroom and I'll get a second bite of the apple. I never anticipated that he would sign it, um, but he signed it. Wow. I got the order. I got the order of probably a week later saying, you know, bank's attorney is not required to comply with the rule of civil procedure. Everybody else is, but not the bank's attorney. So, so. You know, if it was something other than than a foreclosure, that that would be uh, definite grounds for appeals that you could pursue. But yeah. yeah, yeah. So that 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 judgment took off in the foreclosure defense community, and you know, it got circulated through the state. It was actually used as an exhibit um, in the lawsuit that the ACLU filed against Lee County. Wow. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. It was probably just a situation. We run into the situation all the time with judges that, that really don't look at the orders that are presented to them and they just, yeah. they, they just sign it. So there you have that confirmed, confirmed it evidence. And, uh, and I'm sure that I'm sure that the ACLU made, made a whole hill of beans out of that. They, they did, you know, and it, it was really unfortunate for the end consumer because you've got a bank that's robo signing documents to cram through a foreclosure. And you've got a judge who's robo signing orders to cram through a foreclosure because the docket is huge. Huge. Yeah. Tens so of thousands. Got, yeah. You've got an end user, an end consumer who's going to lose their house, you know, on a bank that's doing shoddy work and a judge that's going to, you know, do shoddy work to let the, the, the bank complete its foreclosure. It was really a no win situation for a homeowner. So, how far did the publicity get from this whole Bank of America situation? Oh, it, it went huge. I was, you know, I did, um, I did uh, telephone interviews with newspapers in New Zealand, um, over in Europe. I had somebody from the UK. Um, we did a, a Skype interview with, and then out of nowhere, this caught me by surprise. I got a call from a uh, a guy who 
announced himself as a movie producer in LA. And, you know, I was skeptical about it. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I, I, I ignored the call when he first came in. I, t- I just didn't return the call. And he kept calling and kept calling. And, you know, he said, look, you need to return my call quickly. So I finally talked to him and he said, you know, I, I like your story. Um, I want to, you know, I want to pitch it to some studios. I want to pitch this uh, David versus Goliath new attorney out of law school story. And so we signed with a, a, a producer who went around and shot movie rights um, at different studios. And, you know, uh, Cher um, had some interest in it. She was producing sort of, um, you know, midstream films, um, feel good films. And so we had had some conversations with her and, you know, eventually it just, it never panned out, but the, the media attention was huge on it. And, um, I sort of used that in my client's favor because I, uh, at the time after this had all calmed down, I contacted the attorney for bank of America, the one that wanted me to remove the media from the parking lot. And I said, Hey guys, look, um, I'm filing a lawsuit against bank of America. Um, you know, do you want to accept service or do you want me to serve it, uh, you know, on the registered agent? And he, you know, he called me back and we started talking about it. And he's like, well, what, you know, what are you going to sue him for? In Florida, there is a, a cause of action called um, malicious prosecution. It's where you file a lawsuit against somebody um, when you knew or should have known through reasonable diligence that you had no claim. You know, and, and in certain cases, you can obtain punitive damages for that. So I told him that. I said, look, I, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, the party's not over. And um, he said, well, wait, you know, before you do anything, let's talk. And so we went back and forth and made some, you know, settlement demands on Bank of America. And um, Bank of America basically came back and said yes to our uh, first high demand saying, okay, that's it. You know, well, fine, let's settle it. So we settled it and, um, and that was it. Is that uh, settlement under seal or can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. I mean, there's a confidentiality clause. I can't really talk about it, um, in the agreement, which, you know, for lawyers is a whole nother frustrating aspect to it because you're, they're essentially being able to hide behind their bad acts. But let's just say that your you and your clients were very happy with re, with the end result, correct? Yeah, oh, extremely happy. Uh, the, the problem was, I, I wish I could have told to, could tell you that that was the end of the story. That Bank oh, of America wow. went on their way. Um, they didn't. So uh, approximately eight months later, a year later, after this had all done, I thought you know they we cleared this up and it was done. Bank of America had still never cleared that second mortgage from their um, from their books. You're kidding. And so no. And so they came and sent. Um, typically, what happens in a foreclosure is the banks will hire a property management company that'll go around and inspect the property, and they'll leave a notice on the door saying, "Hey, look, your your property's in pre foreclosure. Um, please contact us. We you know we need to inspect the property, etc." So my client got one of those stickers on his door and I, I literally lost my cool and called the attorney in Washington, D.C. And I said, you know, I thought you guys had learned the first time, but clearly we're back here doing this all over again. And I said, you know, the statute of limitations on my malicious prosecution hadn't run yet. 
and I told him, I said, look, you know, talk to your client because this party's going to get kicked off once again and I'm not looking back. And he said, you know, same story. Don't do anything. Let me talk to my client. And, uh, you know, he talked to him and said, okay, what, you know, what's your number? How do we settle this? And so, you know, we were able to resolve it. They cut a check and uh, that was it. Fortunately, I haven't heard back from them since. They've seemed to finally have cleared that mortgage from the records, but they should have learned the first time. Finally learned their lesson. Wow. So yep. it's, it's amazing that they had to go through all of these loops over what should have, what should never have been done in the first place and should have been settled with a $2,500 payment. But instead, yeah. it cost them so much more and so much negative publicity. All right. At this point in the program, we try to take parts of your story and apply them to situations that our listeners might find themselves. So say an individual is behind on their payments, and all of a sudden they get a letter from their mortgage company demanding full payment on their loan. What should they do, and where do you get involved? Well, uh, it, you can never communicate too much with the bank. Um, so, you know, as soon as you get that letter or, you know, even if you anticipate making or missing a mortgage payment, you need to be communicating with the bank, um, before those letters are even sent. And the, the problems that, that I encountered with the banks are you're dealing with frontline representatives who aren't, um, as savvy and don't have as much control or information to be able to really help you. So you kind of have to be difficult. You kind of have to press the agent to maybe escalate it to their supervisor, but you have to get started in the process early. And, and you start, I mean, you need to start keeping a ledger of who you talk to, the time you talk to them, what you talk to them about, what they said they were going to do, what you said you were going to do, and what the follow-up was. And you need to either throw that in an Excel spreadsheet or in a journal somewhere. And you need to track what happens and who you speak to through this entire process. I tend to get involved um, once the complaint, once the foreclosure complaint has been filed and they have been served. So what do you do once the, well, why don't you walk us through the, through the process, say that, that the, uh, the complaint has been filed and the, and the defendant has been served. And then they call you saying, Hey, I got a, 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 uh, a notice of foreclosure. I've been served with a with a summons and complaint that's supposed to be in court on this date. Uh, what do you do when a client comes to you with that? I'll, I'll sit down and, and talk with them. You know, I I, I want to know what their what their goals are because typically in a foreclosure defense, you'll get one of two clients. You'll get the client who says, you know, look, my you know my property was part of this whole secured uh, securitized mortgage. A debacle. They don't have the note. They can't prove they own it. You know, you need to go to court and get me this house. Um, and they don't want to pay for it. And I really struggled with the ethics behind that of, you know, because these people borrowed the money, you know, they bought the house, they borrowed the money, they signed the loan documents. Um, and then you get the second people who are, look, I need to either buy some time or I'd like to modify the mortgage because I want to stay here or I want to, you know, do a short sale to get out from under my mortgage and get my, you know, my deficiency waived. So there's really one of two people you have to, you know, you, they, 
they can either take one or two directions. And I want to know what directions these clients are before I ever begin representing them. Say they're the latter people. I mean, we really don't want to deal with, with, with the first because, you know, again, you're dealing with ethical issues. But say that they, they, they want to do some sort of loan modification or they want to be yeah. able to – or they've missed some payments and they want to get back on track of, of paying their mortgage. Yeah. So at that point, my, you know, my, my posture in the case is to buy them as much time as, as I can. You know, you'll start doing discovery requests. You'll start taking depositions to buy them enough time. And during the time the court, the case is taking its course, you start completing mortgage modification applications or, you know, you list the property for sale so you can do a short sale or you start talking about reinstatement figures with the bank. Um, and you go through that entire process. During the process, you're trying to litigate the case, the, the foreclosure. How long usually if you know, you put together a good defense. Uh, does it take for the whole process to go through? You could, you could delay a foreclosure anywhere between six months and 12 months. Uh, but I mean, keep in mind that during the crisis, foreclosures could have a lifespan of three or four years. Really? Yeah. Cause you're, I mean, you're talking about these first year uh, associate attorneys who were assigned a foreclosure in these foreclosure mills. And they've got 500 files and there's no way that that attorney can keep 500 files progressing along through, you know, the litigation course. So you're really, you know, you file your answer and affirmative defenses and you're really hoping that the attorney that's assigned to this case just puts your file at the bottom of the list because at that time he or she does not have, you know, the time to be dealing with your defenses. Interesting. But, you know, of course, that situation has changed. You know, we're not we're not dealing with uh, with first year associates that have 500 cases in their in their case file. You know, so you're saying that these is probably between six and 12 months. What, what can what can you logically do between the, that period? Well, during that, that period of time, you're, you know, uh, well, the majority of the, the, the properties in the foreclosure crisis are part of this securitization nightmare where you know these banks threw these these loans into investments and then sold them off to individual individual investors so you can really create issues and make the bank have to jump through some hoops because a mortgage will have been may have been transferred three or four or five times uh, before it actually gets to the entity that is filing the foreclosure action now and if the process that, you know, the assignments of mortgage don't add up and the chain of title is not complete, you can go out back and create some issues. You know, if, if, the, if the assignment goes from A to B and then from B to C and C to D, you've got a tight chain of title on the mortgage and you're probably going to, you know, lose your foreclosure. But in some t cases, you'll get a, you know, A to C uh, C to E, and then sometimes you'll get like A to C, uh, back to A, then to B. So, you know, these people are transferring these mortgages left and right, not caring that they need to have that chain of title, that chain of transfer. So, so it's all, it's all just sloppiness do, there. Oh, it's complete sloppiness. It's complete sloppiness. This goes down to the, the, the assignments of mortgages that these robo signers were doing. 
they weren't looking to see what the status of the property was or where they were sending it. They're just in document preparation mode. Wow. That's a, that's incredible. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that it's somewhat behind us. I, I'm a little bit dubious as to what might be happening in the, in the future with regards to a possible second housing bubble and another foreclosure crisis that may happen in the future. Yeah, we, we didn't learn from 2008. Um, we will be back in the same, um, same sort of problem again in the future. And I'm of the opinion is once you separate the relationship between the borrower and the lender and the lender becomes some nameless, you know, faceless entity, um, that's when you start doing these predatory loans, these stated income loans where there's no income verification. And they start churning out these loans that really had no business ever being made. It's because the, the lender is not accountable to the borrower, right? Lender lends the money to the borrower and decides, look, I'm going to sell this loan on the open market and I'm no longer responsible for this loan because, you know, whoever I sold it to is going to be responsible for it. Right. And my obligation to, to vet this borrower and make sure the borrower can afford it, uh, that requirement's not really it's not there because we're not dealing with my bank's assets. I'll sell it to somebody else, pass that risk on to someone else. Oh, it's amazing. Whenever you do a, uh, a real estate closing on a, a piece, usually single family or condo home, one of the documents or several of the documents, in fact, point out point blank, Hey, we're going to sell this. We own this yeah. now, but we're, we're going to sell this and you're going to be okay right. with us selling this. And that's actually on the documents that they sign at closing. So, it's, they're not even hiding it. They're, they are so brazen about the type of business that they're in. We're, we are a clearinghouse for mortgages, and then we just we shove them along to make our quick money. Yeah. You, you, we need to get back to the, the, the day when the bank had a personal relationship with the borrower, knew the borrower's financial status, knew what they could afford, what they could make payments on, and keep that relationship so the bank that's actually loaning the money is assuming the risk, not passing it off to someone else. Exactly, yeah. That's what we need to get back to. Well, and the other, the, other side, the other side of that coin is people have got to stop speculating on real estate. You know, prices get inflated, um, you know, the market drives it up or drives it down, and it's really based off real estate speculation. Mm-hmm. Well, I need any... Bubble economic bubble is based off of speculation. Uh, one yep. of the, the pillars of, of capitalism is that you know we are the value of something is not the work that's put in it or uh, the uh, work that's, that that it creates. It is the it is what somebody will pay for it. And of course, with real real estate uh, real estate uh, speculation, that's really what it is. The value of a piece of property is what somebody will will pay for it. And whether it's overinflated or not, people need to be wise as to discovering whether or not there is a bubble that that's happening and invest accordingly or not sure. purchase property with the idea of, 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 of speculating that it's going to, to increase based off of an, art, an artificial demand. Uh, sure. This has been a great conversation, Todd. Any final thoughts? No, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, great to share the story and, you know, to talk about, what these banks did at, at this time in, in the legal field. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
This has been Law Stories brought to you by M2M Legal. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you go for your listening pleasure. And if you'd like, please visit us at m2mlegal.com and partake in our various legal services. I'm James Skiles, President and CEO of M2M Legal, and thank you very much for listening. Law Stories with James Skiles is a production of 1Acast Media in association with M2M Legal. All statements made by hosts and guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the producers or distributors of this program. Although the hosts and guests of this program are attorneys, no statements should be construed as legal advice. If you require legal assistance, contact an attorney licensed to practice in your area.